For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how Pima County is responding to the closure of a local way station for asylum seekers. The filmmaker behind Bisbee 17 talks about how art can help a community to heal from historic rifts. And stories that can be classified as very short from R. Lee Sheehan. Her new collection is called Once Into the Night. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Since January, the former Benedictine Monastery on Country Club near Speedway has served as a temporary shelter for asylum seekers on their way through Tucson heading to other parts of the country. Now, Catholic Community Services and Pima County are making plans to relocate the shelter because the property owner will close the site for redevelopment at the end of this month. Joining me now to tell us more is Emma Gibson. Hi, Mark. Emma, do we have any estimate of how many asylum seekers have been using the monastery as a place to stay while they're waiting for news about their asylum status? Catholic Community Services estimates that over 10,000 people have come through the Benedictine Monastery since January. So in light of the situation with the site being closed down, where is it that we think these people are going to go? Well, now that the the monastery is no longer an option, they've been shopping around for a new place, and they believe that they found a new location at the Pima County Juvenile Justice Complex. Last week, Bishop Edward Weisenberger wrote to County Administrator Chuck Huckleberry, requested that they could use this site for their new temporary shelter for asylum seekers. We've been able to find an excellent facility that just checks all of our boxes for what we need to take care of asylum seekers. The facility that the county has is big enough for two to 300 people, needs almost no renovations except cosmetic. It has a laundry service, a food service. The price is right. It's close enough to the airport that we can get asylum seekers to the airport. It's close enough to the bus station, and it's a centralized location for our up to 50 volunteers and workers per day. So it's really, we just feel that this is a great blessing for us. Like Bishop Weisenberger says, this new complex could check a lot of boxes. Huckleberry mentioned in an additional letter that he is approving county staff to start writing up a lease. He's looking at a one-year renewable lease, and he wants to charge the Catholic Community Services $100 a year for this space. And he's also approved county staff to start prepping it for habitation. Is there a final decision to be made on this subject? And if so, when will it happen? Will it be before the closure of the monastery? You make a good point. The monastery is supposed to be closing on July 26th, but the next Board of Supervisors meeting for Pima County is until August 6th. So we kind of have this awkward limbo stage. When I talked to Bishop Weisenberger, he said that he has spoken to the owner of the Benedictine Monastery And he believes that they have a little bit of grace period to transition into their new shelter space. So if this lease is approved, then how will the shelter be sharing space in an active juvenile detention center? 
And you're right that this juvenile detention center will still be housing youth, about 50 or so, but it was originally set up to house about 350 people. So there, there's been unused spaces for many years, and some of these spaces have never been used at all. Where the asylum seekers would be housed is completely separate, and it, it'll be secure. Weisenberger says that this is actually going to be an upgrade for them from the, the Benedictine Monastery. Even though the monastery, too, was a lovely environment, it was not set up in its infrastructure for our needs. The plumbing system especially was a real challenge. We believe this is going to be a much easier to provide a safe, healthy, appropriate environment for people who are just really coming to us on a very temporary basis, anywhere from a few hours to a few days. I spoke to Jan Lesher. She's the deputy chief county administrator, and she says that they have had this optics issue of putting asylum seekers who are here legally in the United States in a detention center. That's been a problem and a hurdle that the county has had to deal with during this whole process. And what she told me is that at the end of the day, this is an empty building that they can provide to Catholic community services for an affordable price. The reality is that over 10,000 people this year have been released in this community. Customs and Border Protection and the federal government are either going to release individuals who are seeking asylum in the United States, either on the streets or at the bus station or within a location. They're in our community generally for two to three days while they move on to their final destination. And part of our job is to help them find that location. What we hope to do is make it as seamless as possible for both those who live in the community and those asylum seekers passing through. So talking about the price, Emma, how is it that the county will be able to pay for this? At this time, the county doesn't know how much this whole project is going to cost to renovate it, to make it habitable for the temporary shelter. But they are hoping that everything will be reimbursed by the federal government. Lesher says that they're going to try and get reimbursed by Operation Stone Garden, which is a federal grant program that works with reimbursing law enforcement agencies who work with Border Patrol or with Arizona Department of Homeland Security. Thank you, Emma Gibson. Listeners can follow all of your reporting at news.azpm.org. When the last mine shut down in 1975, it was catastrophic. A mining town without a mine is usually referred to as a ghost town. This town could keep a secret like nobody else. In 1917, a labor dispute turned into a civil war in the mining town of Bisbee. Workers demanding better pay and safer conditions ran up against the political power of the Phelps Dodge Company. Men who were deemed loyal to the company's position were deputized and ordered to forcefully deport, at gunpoint, anyone that the company labeled as undesirable. 1,300 men were loaded into cattle cars and exiled into the New Mexican desert, told never to return to Bisbee under penalty of death. The documentary film Bisbee 17 explores the cultural and racial scars that resulted from that 102-year-old event. The filmmakers encourage the current residents to dramatically reenact the major events of the Bisbee deportation. What results is something that has been called a ghost story by way of a documentary. Robert Green, the director of Bisbee 17, will be appearing with the film in Bisbee and Tucson this weekend. Well, it's important to note that we didn't instigate a, a conversation necessarily. I think what we really did was galvanize or maybe just amplify a conversation that was starting to happen already around the 100th anniversary. 
of the deportation. So that's something to be very clear about. When you come into town, and I was one of these people, when you come into Bisbee, because I started coming to Bisbee in 2003, mostly what happens is the same story. You come in, you fall in love with this place, and then at some point someone, you know, friend of a friend says, have you ever heard of this thing, the deportation, that this that happened here? And it's usually like a stab in the heart because you're like, oh, what a great place, what a complicated, interesting place, yes, but something like this to happen there. And I think that that's a lot of people's stories. So I think, you know, when you talk to families like Sue Ray's family, uh, the Rays, or if you talk to people like Richard, who played Harry Wheeler, the sheriff who was the principal antagonist of the story, if you will, um, or protagonist, depending on which side you look at, the deportation is something that they've talked about in their family for, for you know, generations, literally, but then often told in school, we don't talk about it. So even if it was something that you did know about, you were actually told for many years, do not talk about it. Um, so I think the sort of action of the Centennial Group coming together, the 100th anniversary, all that with our presence in town and everything, we started to stir the pot enough that people started talking about it. And the people who knew about it thought of it as an open wound. And the people who had not heard about it yet were often shocked that you know they had never heard about it. Do you think that the, the time period that you made this movie in was in some ways the last chance to see or hear from a generation who was actually impacted from the deportation? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's the last generation, I'd like to think it's the last generation of, of silence, really. I believe that the story of the deportation, because uh, what's happening right now on the border, for example, you don't have to even have the slightest bit of an ima- of imagination to understand the links between what we filmed uh, that happened 100 now 102 years ago with what's happening right now. You know, I've said before it's not a metaphor for the past. It is the story of America, basically. You know, I think that the the story will continue to resonate in town. I think it's something that will continue to be uh, affecting the people who come into town. But this was probably the last generation that dealt with the children of people who were silent, the grandchildren of people who were silent, the, you know, the people who were left in town were the ones, like, it's like we said in the film, were the ones who did the deporting. And so this is probably the last generation of people who felt that they had grown up being told not to talk about it, and now they were ready to talk about it. Um, so that's certainly the case. When the labor dispute occurred, which led up to the 1917 deportation, it was the Phelps Dodge Company that held power over Bisbee. And that is reflected in many ways in the story. To this day, the footprint of Phelps Dodge is big in Bisbee. What did this sort of teach you or what observations might you have about what this says about corporate control and its role in American life? Well, I think it, it, it goes to the, you know, the real question there was about the war, right? We had entered the Great War a few months before the, the strike led by the industrial workers of the world in Bisbee. And, you know, Americans, generally speaking, were anti-war until the propaganda machines started pumping out, you know, propaganda and until it sort of joined forces with the, with the companies, the companies like Phelps Dodge, and that became, you know, the one voice of we need to go to war. And, and Phelps Dodge was able to make their profit seem patriotic, right? They were a copper company who was like at, at war was and copper was an important part of munitions. So people in town believed that the company needed to be setting record profits, which they were. They were setting record profits at the time. 
And that record profit was somehow an American patriotic thing. That's the power. That's the secret of the power. Somehow, corporate America has convinced us that the American dream is them making a lot of money, that the core of this country is making large profits. And the, the workers in Bisbee were making more than other work, copper you know, plants, basically. But, but at the heart of it, a, a bit Bisbee had been known as, an, as a white man's camp. It was, an, a, it was an American camp. They wanted to make an, Amer- an American camp. And the people who were deported that day were Mexicans and Slavs and Poles and Germans and one Anglo-Saxon, and they were rounded up all by Anglo-Saxons. Right. So somehow, you know, that, that seemed patriotic to do. And it was because the corporate power joining forces with the propaganda of pro-American propaganda, that, that is a powerful, powerful force. And when they figured that out, they were, they were able to wield that power, I think. So when it came down to the end, the choice given to the members of the IWW was return to work or be exiled forever. And you touched on the ethnic cleansing element of this, which one of your very astute um, participants in the film mentions, because it's important for people to realize that these men weren't being sent to a detention center or to the other side of the border. They were being taken out to the desert to die. John C. Greenway, who was the head of the Calumet in Arizona mine, who was an interesting character in and of himself, he had the brilliant idea that he proposed to the rest of the mine bosses and to Harry Wheeler to send them to a military camp, basically the army base out in New Mexico. Um, there was an army uh, camp there because there was a revolution happening over the border and there were shots fired occasionally. And so their idea was, in fact, to bring them to a camp. And when they got there, uh, the army said, are you kidding me? There, there weren't kidnapping laws because, you know, there were no overstate kidnapping laws until Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped, which should tell you everything you need to know about the power of things in this country. But basically, the army was like, we're not taking these men. These men were striking, put them back on the train. So they had no other choice but to back the train up 45 minutes and essentially send them out into near Hermanas, New Mexico. Uh, they were originally going to Columbus, New Mexico, and they backed up about 45 minutes and sent them into the desert into, uh, you know, near a town, but it wasn't a town. It was, it was a, you know, just kind of a no man's land. And then, and then a camp sort of formed around them at that point to, you know, to try to, for the people who knew what had happened and try to help the men that were there. So it's, it's a combination of, like a lot of things, a combination of evil and stupidity that got them in that situation. I think they honestly thought these are un-American, unpatriotic people who are trying to disrupt our you know, dutiful work and making profit and helping the war. And the army will, of course, understand that we're kicking out a bunch of anti-American radicals and they'll get it. And the army was like, of course, we're not going to take them. So that's what happened with that situation. Were you prepared for the emotional toll that this project was going to have both on the crew and the people in Bisbee? And do you recommend that similar historic observances be considered by other communities who are dealing with complicated histories? We had no idea where the film was ultimately going. I mean, we had hopes that this would be a cathartic experience. The central question the film really asks is, should you bury the ghost or should you exercise them? How do you move forward? Is it better to say, we need to talk about this continually to get this out of our system? Or is it better to say, that was the past, that was wrong, bury it? 
because I'm a filmmaker and I'm, and this is the film that we decided to make with the town. And that's an important way to think about it, is we decided to make it with the town. I lean towards the exorcism, right? When you see their resonances today, when you see how this helps us understand what's happening in our country today, images and moments help. And it helps the town, it helps the individuals, and it helps the viewer, and it helps us, the filmmakers, all try to understand what and why we've done it. You know, we built a train, you're having neighbors put neighbors on that train. Even though that train is fake, even though those guns are not loaded, you can't help but understand more deeply what it is that happened and what continues to happen. So for other towns, I would say you have to tread responsibly because because the truth is, is that this is many years in the making. I have a long relationship with Bisbee, and it took us a long time, uh, months and months and months and really uh, over a year to work with the community to get to this level of trust and safety and sort of a self-awareness that everyone sort of had together to be able to, to sort of do this together. I think it, it is a po- the power of media, the power of coming together and making art together can lead you to some really exciting places and can really open up some things. And it can also tear open wounds and cause problems that are unnecessary. So I think, yeah, I actually think creating art, generally speaking, is a powerful and meaningful thing to do, but tread lightly and be responsible. My guest was Robert Green, the director of Bisbee 17. Green will visit Tucson and Bisbee to present the film and talk about his work. It will be screened on PBS Channel 6 on Monday, July 15th, starting at 9 p.m. You can find a schedule on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. This is author Aurelie Sheehan, reading a story from Once Into the Night. Pancake Flowers I am nervous. I feel completely nervous now, and usually I'm at least pretty nervous. Sometimes I hit a plateau of calm, but usually I'm nervous. If the circumstance is promising, say I'm meeting someone for coffee, or I'm about to talk in an official capacity, Well, I'm a bit jittery going in. Then there's a sliding descent, and ultimately, the moment when I become a large person smashing a flower into a pancake, or a large person trying to pick up a tiny flower and put it in a tiny vase on a tiny dresser. Granted, afterward I may experience a kind of calm, or ennui, or at least the mild contemplation of what could have gone better. Usually nervousness comes in anticipation and planning of what I'll do, rather than what will be done to me. But there are exceptions. If there is a flying around of something, a buzzing, darting motion, with possibilities of quick nesting and attachment, this gives me a completely different kind of nervous feeling. Let me add that there is also a jumpy intoxication that occurs if I'm standing close to the tracks on a subway platform and a train barrels in. But nervousness itself is not a train. It's more of a boat, a canoe with a solid seat and a long oar I've got both hands on. A person might ask, and with good cause, does gravity keep us up 
or is it solely there to keep us down? We remain footed on the ground, but we're not smashed to the ground. Leaden air does not smash us down like pancake flowers, except for when we sleep and dream. In her new collection of short stories, Once Into the Night, Aurelie Sheehan visits a form she's explored before, the very short short story. The uniting element here is that most of these 57 stories, ranging in length from two sentences to three pages, are written in first-person perspective. Aurelie Sheehan is a professor of creative writing at the University of Arizona. I was really interested in the line between fiction and autobiography in this project. I wanted to, in a way, write about myself, but not be constrained by my, you know, my actual resume or, you know, who I really am and who my family is and what I do for a living. I thought it would be interesting to sort of almost put some of that stuff aside and make it kind of an imaginative autobiography. Like, how would you write someone's autobiography if you only had access to their dreams or their favorite colors or or the stories that they told themselves at night. And so this book is supposed to access some of that. The premise is that it's kind of my own fingerprint, only it's one that people might not really recognize because it doesn't have those signifiers that we're so used to. Or maybe these are, in a way, roads not taken in your life? Yes, yes. I mean, I'm not an ice man. For instance, one is a sort of embodying an Iceman from hundreds and thousands of years ago. I'm not that person, but I can jump into that space. And, you know, maybe I have an Iceman in me and maybe you do too. You know, it is fiction. I, I wrote it as fiction, but with this sort of secret wish to kind of feel like I'm telling a kind of truth or, or like I'm tracking a life of a kind. And so, as you've noticed, it has it starts with birth and it ends with death. What came first in creating some of these stories for you? Was it the character, the identity that you were going to be discussing, or did you just start with I and see where it went? I love that question because I guess you, you could say I really did start with I. Um, this I, though, has so many different identities. Um, it's it's not it's not like I have five or or even 10 different personas here. It's more like there are 57. I think there are that many different stories. And um, I didn't want to be tethered by seeing associations between them. I wanted to have it have that kind of freedom that the dream life does, which is that, you know, realities can can occur at the same time. And when you know, you're in a dream, it all makes sense yeah. at the time. Yeah. And also our our lives change by the day in terms of how we perceive them. I mean, the way I would write about, say, my daughter now compared to how I might have done that two years ago or two years hence, I have a different perspective on our relationship. Was there someone who influenced you strongly in the idea of doing such brief stories? I mean, I think I was first many years ago given a a sense of permission by the work of Lydia Davis. Since then, you know, she really came into the public eye as, as somebody who writes these very short pieces. They don't have a twist ending. They're not really, they aren't prose poems. They're, they aren't, they aren't stories with characters 
per se, um, but they're kind of little experiences um, that have a profound um, effect on you. And she has a very unique voice and one that you know has a lot of tension in it, um, and it carries a lot of these pieces. So I think that originally gave me some permission, and I, I carried that into my first collection of very short pieces jewelry box which came out a few years ago that one though also had a kind of a flirtation with truth because I called those pieces histories and this of course I'm I'm mentioning I'm thinking of it as a kind of fictional autobiography so I don't know why this short form for me feels so connected to um, the idea of truth or the idea of um, an emotional space, um, a kind of imaginative space that I can enter into authentically as a person more than maybe a storyteller. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but for me, this kind of space, the very short, has a connection to poetry. The very short story. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, prose poems have been with us forever. And um, I love the idea of being able to enter with a, in, a, in a burst and move back out again and not answer too many questions, but kind of pose them and kind of create that, the atmosphere um, or the conditions for an experience. Relating to what you said about wanting these stories to be moments of truth, I think that the longer a narrative goes on, the more an author might feel compelled to add filigree, to add detail, to add subplot, extra characters, whereas these, with their brevity, eliminate the need for all of that. And it's just, it's a, it's a picture, it's a window. It's, it is like poetry in that sense. I felt like the point was to create these individual miniatures, these almost Fabergé eggs of different people's identities and experiences. I mean, that really resonates with me and, and my intentions. And when I think about the idea of what you are saying that the the longer story requires subplots and character development, another way of looking at that too is that those longer narratives and those kinds of requirements that we usually we expect in, in those longer stories, sometimes it crowds out something else. You know, I mean, if you're re if you're thinking about character development, thinking about plot, thinking about um, setting and dialogue, I just had the feeling that something else was maybe being ignored, some other kind of um, an element in writing or a kind of um, aesthetic appreciation for language itself. And so plucking them away and seeing what is left to work with. It hasn't felt like a subtraction for me. It's more felt like uh, being able to expand out into the space that is left. Aurelie Sheehan's new collection of very short short stories is called Once Into the Night, published by FC2 and the University of Alabama Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.